More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. You know, as someone who no longer works in academia, but did for a long time, and I probably spent 20 plus years in academia, and I was under the impression that the great thing about it is that uh, it created a safe space for ideas and for the expression of ideas and the lively debate about ideas over ideas. And I think that the last two years has shown us that that's not a given for us anymore, that ideas are no more free within the walls of a university or a college than they are outside of those walls, and perhaps less so, perhaps there's less freedom of expression um, and freedom to pursue the truth as you see it to its logical conclusions. So I'm really happy today to be joined by two Ryerson students. We have Curtis Heinen and Vina Kiambao. I hope I got those two, did I do okay? Got your names yeah. right. Yeah. And um, so Curtis and Vina are two students who are part of a group of Ryerson students who filed a lawsuit against the university over the imposition of the COVID vaccine mandate. Now, can you tell us when did you do this and why did you do it? Curtis, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we started the lawsuit on April 1st, and it was actually the result of a culmination of, I suppose, a group of us that had been formed in early fall. Uh, having grown and realizing we need to, we need to get something done. Mm-hmm. Um, back in uh, October of 2021, I realized that the university was going to Im- impose stricter mandates coming in the winter semester um, as they had in the fall semester, but more loosely and, and with more exemptions and things like that. Um, so, I decided we needed to start a group. Uh, so I, I gathered as many students that were in the same position as me and got them all together. And there were only about four of us at the beginning and we started meeting weekly. We supported each other. We emailed all sorts of administrators, um, but found that we were kind of at a loss and the administration was not really responding to anything we were saying. They were not really giving us the time of day. And so we kept on meeting and we managed to secure a lawyer, um, I would say maybe in late February, early March. And uh, that from there, it just kind of built itself. Like it sort of just snowballed from there. And we got, I think 16 initial people to agree that we need to, take legal action because these these mandates are simply wrong. Like there are students that uh, were denied legitimate medical exemptions, denied legitimate religious exemptions. There were students that had privacy concerns and all of us had been uh, deregistered for the winter semester and we had nowhere to turn. So um, none of us really wanted to take legal action, but we decided it was the necessary thing to do. And so we we started that on April 1st. And so you were all deregistered. So this is back in the fall and you were all de-enrolled or deregistered for January, 2022. And now we're in June, 2022. Were you ever able to go back to classes? Did you ever get re-registered between January and now? Some of us uh, were able to, I, I should actually correct myself because one student um, who 
did uh, receive both doses of the vaccine and um, was comfortable disclosing uh, her status, was able to take her uh, uh, classes through to the end of, of winter 2022. So the one person who complied with the vaccine mandate was allowed to be re-registered? Uh, yes. However, she's in our lawsuit because of a vaccine injury. Um, so there's there's actually like four different angles here. There's the vaccine injured angle, there's the uh, religious exemptions, the medical exemptions, and the privacy concerns, and none of these have really been addressed by the university. Mm -hmm. um, the university, just to answer your question a bit more directly, um, on May 1st, I believe, they lifted their, their vaccination mandate, but that didn't help us with the winter semester. Uh, it enabled us to enroll in um, summer courses and fall courses and also do our, um, our intentions for the next winter semester. However, there's no guarantee that this mandate will come will 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 not come back. In mm -hmm. fact, um, we're sort of erring on the side of expecting it to come back at some point. So um, our our law students. Um, what program are you in? I'm in urban and regional planning. And what year were you in prior to January of this year? Uh, third year, so two and a half years in. Well, well, did you notice changes over the, I guess, two and a half years that you were at Ryerson in terms of the culture of openness, in terms of how students uh, and or professors behaved in the classroom, in terms of their tolerance to asking questions or voicing contrary opinions? I don't want to say that I saw change, although I knew there was a problem. Bef prior to entering uh, academia. Mm. Uh, I entered as a mature student at the age of 25. So um, I, I sort of, I, I knew what I was getting into with this, um, with, the, with the suppression of ideas and, and just the, the inability to truly have free expression and, and open dialogue in the university. Um, so I can't say that I noticed a difference from then till now. Um, but it is an issue and I've always tried to push the envelope in my, in my classes, but, but obviously. Yeah, it, I think that seems like a, that answer is consistent with my experience because I certainly notice a change over the last 20 or so years, but mm -hmm. over the last two and a half years, it's been pretty stifling from what I, what I've seen and certainly, uh, teaching, you know, ethics in the classroom, you would, you would expect there to be a diversity of opinions, that it would be hard to get people to agree, that there would be, you know, sort of emotion, a lot of emotions that would need to be, you know, managed and worked through. And that just hasn't been the case for a number of years. Vina, I'd love to bring you into the conversation now because you are or were a master's philosophy student. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. Tell I still me, am. <laughs> you still are. Okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, you know, like what does philosophy mean to you? What what drew you to it? And then um, how does that jive with what the university is expecting of you now? Yeah, sure. Um, it's actually a really long answer, <laughs> but I'll try to keep it, I'll try to keep it very brief. Um, for, for me, actually, I, I, 
I've been at Ryerson for many years. I actually started in the business program. So I had completed a business de undergraduate degree first, and then I jumped straight into an undergraduate philosophy degree. Mm -hmm. And then I just, I, I really felt at home with it. And so um, now I'm in the MA program. And so from business to philosophy, like what really, mm -hmm. if I can just condense it into like one or two sentences, I just felt like, I just felt that I, I genuinely wanted to be serious with working on my thinking skills. I, um, I just felt that, you know, I was, I'm still young and I should, I should just do what I feel like is an investment for myself. Um, so in this case, it would be kind of like uh, your own thinking, your intellect, right? And so I just thought, why not jump straight into philosophy, right? And so I actually never took any philosophy courses prior to this, but, but one thing that I felt, you know, no matter what I'm going to learn um, in terms of the content or ideas, one thing that I felt would remain constant is just working on those skills and um, whatever it might be. Like, for example, I, from by first year, my prof, my professors were telling me to be very charitable to ideas, right? So even if, let's say somebody's idea is really difficult to understand um, or you just don't agree with it. It's, it's really just about um, being charitable and understanding that idea um, because maybe if you try hard enough, you'll actually, you might even end up agreeing with that, mm. um, that idea that was so different from yours, right? Um, and mm. so just, just that openness, right, of, of whatever is given to you, um, just being there, <laughs> and understanding and being curious about it. So generally, that's what it was for me. Um, and so kind of touching on what actually you were speaking about prior um, when it comes to um, how universities have changed and if there's, um, like how are, how are ideas being taken on in class, for example, right? Um, one thing that I noticed is, at least for like COVID and the pandemic is a really sensitive topic for many people, right? And so one thing that really, um, I guess affected me was just when I have professors who would say, would actually just pull out say their opinions on the vaccines and how if you don't get vaccinated, then you're a selfish person or uh, stories about how they have family members who are very intelligent, but for some reason they won't, they won't take the vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, like as much as, for example, as much as any student would want to, you know, say something um, opposing that, it's just, it's still really difficult knowing that you're in that class, your professor is going to grade you on something. And um, yeah, it's, it's, you're kind of in your head in the moment, you're kind of saying, should I, should I, should I say something? Um, will I, will this hurt me in my class if I say this? Uh, will, you know, you know. Lena, I can't, I, and I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's just so, it's so odd and awful to hear that this is, that this is what's happening. It, it sounds to me like your experience is that the, whatever you're being taught, you're not being taught freedom in your own thinking. And and you, you mentioned charity earlier, right? To be charitable towards people's ideas. We actually have a principle in philosophy and in science called a principle of charity. 
right? That we shouldn't sort of assume yeah. the worst. You should try uh, not to build a straw man argument. You should try yeah. to um, understand the merits of a position yeah. until they become clear and maybe indefensible or something. But I guess one question I have, and I've wondered about this, about students and about academics who stay when they don't sort of believe in what's going on at the universities, what value is there in a post-secondary education in Canada right now, if anything, in your minds? That is, that's actually a really good question. Because <laughs> one of the things I was personally interested in um, researching for my program was the, just the value of universities. Like, what is it, right? Um, but- A good question. I think that's always been a good question. But yeah. Now it's really punctuated, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, so the thing is, to me, the fact that there is just a singular viewpoint now on vaccine mandates, for example, um, just the fact that um, this isn't this isn't really it was never posed as a question in on our campus, for example, it was just adopted right away as if it was just this is, this is the one answer. It's almost like a religion, right? Prima face um, true, right? Yeah. So I feel like universities should be that one place in society where well, this is where we ask questions. Not only is it okay, but it should be encouraged. Um, we should, you know, this is that one place where you, you should, that, this is just that one place where you should ask those questions, especially the ones that are contentious, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so if the fact that universities haven't been doing that, and for example, they only have vaccine confidence campaigns, but they don't have, they don't have anything, uh, Make, right. like for example like no debates for example right mm -hmm. um so just the fact that we don't have that in the universities it just I, I don't really know what a university is for anymore other than yeah. maybe graduating to get a job somewhere I'm but not then sure. what are those job contexts going to be like if everybody's been trained in this culture of not 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 being allowed to have diversities of opinion right What do you think, Curtis? What do you think, Curtis? Well, you know, I... I, there's a selection mechanism. So yeah. what's happening is the, the people who might think the way we think might be thinking outside the box, maybe not necessarily taking whatever has been given to us as knowledge um, or prescription. It's what this is doing is it's weeding us out. Yeah. Like there's a selection ideologically and, and yes, ideologically. And mm -hmm. so I, I, yeah, there's no like, di like real distinction. It's, it's, ide it's pure ideology. Um, but what that's going to do to the corporate environments, to the institutional environments is it's going to obviously like this ideology is just going to make its way into those places, whether yeah. it be government institutions, or corporations. Right. Mm -hmm. So don't you wonder if there, I mean, there are a lot of um, new, we might call them unconventional universities that are starting, right? There's uh, the Center for Learning, that's sort of Toronto-based or Canada-based. There's the, um, the Austin, Texas one. There's one in, in Vermont that's, that's getting going. Do you think these sorts of institutions will become more popular? Or do you think there's sort of a moral obligation or an obligation of sort of citizenship to stay within the traditional universities and try to, to change them? 
I don't think there's an obligation to stay in the traditional system. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's an obligation. I think um, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for these small institutions to to gain traction unless there's suddenly some kind of shift that happens where there's this mass exodus from the traditional university. Um, I, but I do think that 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 these institutions might have an ability to sort of not referee the bigger university, but sort of influence the existing structure mm. in a way that is positive because they might see it as a threat, perhaps. I don't know, what do yeah. you think? I, I was actually, I was thinking along the similar lines, like uh, um, it's, I think they're kind of like competition now, right? Um, so the one in Austin, Texas, for example, we. I, I've been reading all about it. It's really interesting. Um, I think they have their first cohort happening now. And um, there's just a lot of like big names um, mm-hmm. who are teaching there and influencing students who like from like various backgrounds, like um, there's like veterans there, there are artists. And then there's, there's, but there's also students from other universities like Harvard and Yale and Stanford, for example, who have registered and are taking courses now. So it looks to me, first of all, it feels like something like organizations like that, they're, they, they're just inevitable because it's not just the students who are frustrated with the system. It's also the researchers and professors and scholars at universities who have just become, <laughs> I think everyone's frustrated with how things are. And so people now they want to explore something else. So I think one one good one, just even thinking from a business per- perspective, right? Like these new institutions, if, um, if they do succeed at what they're doing and they do what they say that they're gonna do, then they actually pose as really good competition uh, against all the traditional ones. And then maybe like once they see, once other universities see the value and what these new institutions are doing, then maybe the other universities might start adopting some of those things, which it's not it's not a bad thing. It's actually a great thing because there's no problem in having both, right? One way we might describe, I think, what's going on in the universities and in culture more broadly is that we have a kind of culture of silence, right? That extinguishes or prevents or at least severely punishes anyone who might think of dissenting or questioning or blowing the whistle, right? Do you think that, um, I mean, I'm curious about the effect that this has had on your lives. And I don't just mean things like financial or, you know, now you're, you're not in school, so you have to do something else. You have to hire a lawyer. I don't so much mean, you know, the logistics of your life, but um, how has it impacted your life personally, your relationships, your mental life, when so few students seem to agree with you, when your professors are sort of pushing on you to to comply with a certain way of thinking on pain of ridicule or losing grades or something like that. What what effects has that had on you personally? You wanna take it, Vina? Yeah, I can can get started. (laughs) Um, That's a really good question. Um, Look, the first thing and really big thing that comes up for me is um, just feeling like I really don't belong anywhere <laughs> and um, and the feeling that I would I have to like I have somehow have to become a like a fully independent person in order to survive in society so for example I you know will anybody hire me um, if like I always I always 
I was kind of working in the direction of, you know, working in a university setting or the government, for example, but they have, they have requirements that you have to show proof of vaccination. So I, I feel like I'm back at square one now where I, I wouldn't know how I would make a living. So, so now I'm thinking of actually even switching out of my program and learning a really tangible skill so that I know I, I always have something to sell so that I can, you know, provide for myself. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a, and on one on one end, it's a really uneasy feeling because obviously, you know, you think of society as we're all in it, and then there's like all these working parts, and you kind of just like plug yourself in there. But then now it's kind of like just because of um, this different ideas that we have, like I'm going to be like I. It feels like I have to fend for myself. It's like all yeah. of these options, and now your your pathway is getting narrow and narrow and narrow. Yeah, does that seem? Yeah. But on one end, maybe, you know, this whole experience has been really, it's really opened my eyes to a lot of issues that were really just, <laughs> they were just under the surface, but mm-hmm. now the whole pandemic and COVID and all these um, vaccine mandate issues, it, all these issues that were underneath just surface to the top and it just showed themselves to, to me and Curtis, for example. And so, yeah, um, in a way I'm kind of, I'm kind of grateful that it happened just so that I'm more, I feel, yeah, I feel more aware. Have a clearer (laughs) sense of yourself and your your deeply held beliefs and principles and who you are, right? And that's a gift in some way, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Curtis, what about you? What sort of impact has this had on you, you know, mentally or in terms of your thinking about yourself, your identity, who you are, what the future holds? Well, you mentioned uh, deeply held personal beliefs right at the end there and and I was I had been living under sort of this assumption before that you know we have these these I don't want to use the term collective but I guess that's that's the word I'm going to use collective sort of values and beliefs that sort of underpin our culture or maybe ought to underpin our culture in some sort of hierarchical way so like freedom of speech for example uh, bodily autonomy, you know, things like that. And I think, um, I had operated, I had been operating under this sort of assumption that everyone kind of agrees at this point that you can't, it's not good to discriminate against people for, you know, arbitrary differences, um, whether that be appearance or whatever. Uh, and in this case, vaccine status and, I kind of in the back of my mind knew that 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 isn't necessarily agreed agreed to by everyone at a fundamental level, but people definitely pay it lip service. Mm. And this has just sort of exposed that, I think. But it um, wasn't actually a deeply held belief, as you said. It wasn't a deeply held belief. It was. It's something that people say to look good, uh, and I'm not. I'm not over generalizing because obviously it is deeply held by some people. Um, but there's a lot of virtue signaling going on. Mm-hmm. And so this has been fairly difficult just to go to the relationship side of the question, like in, in just my relationships with people. I found out that that people that are fairly close to me don't necessarily subscribe at, a, at that deep level that I was referring to, right? And that that can create turmoil in, in all sorts of different relationships, whether they be um, uh, 
friends or family or, or whatever. And, and, and that's been pretty troubling and that's been weighing the most on me. Um, the losing, losing school is a, is an issue for me. You know, the financial aspect is an issue. The lack of job prospects is an issue. Mm -hmm. The narrowing of my options is an issue, but fundamentally for me, it's like, I, I, I thought we had a, a sort of a principle in society that, you know, you don't, you don't treat people differently um, on the basis of arbitrary characteristics or irrelevant characteristics. And I would consider vaccination status an irrelevant characteristic to any, for any of these different things that we're being um, mandated out of, like whether that be restaurants, schools, jobs, it seems to me that that is an, that is an irrelevant characteristic. Think makes, I mean, you mentioned personal relationships, and I think we've seen, I mean, I've talked to so many people over the last year or so who say that, you know, this COVID issue broke apart relationships that could withstand everything else. Why this, do you think? Why does this issue in particular put people on opposite sides of a line that we seem unable to cross? Well, it might just be to go to what Matthias Desmond says, the, the mass formation psychosis, like that that could be a unique event, right? I, right. I, I don't exactly know other than, uh, uh, yeah, that's the first thing that popped into my head. That's that's really all I can really think of. There, there's a unique psychological state that, that people are in. And it's a unique psychological state that doesn't just make you refuse to listen to someone else or refuse to accept their beliefs, but that makes your default position one of demonizing and scapegoating and ridiculing, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting. And I think when you do that, right, that's either a symptom of or helps to fuel a cont contempt in a relationship. And, you know, um, therapists I know have said that they can tell when a couple is sitting in their uh, room in a, in a therapy session, which couples will survive and which ones won't. And the thing that makes a couple not survive is the presence of contempt, right? That people can overcome other things. They can overcome adultery. They can overcome betrayal and lying and financial differences, religious differences, even differences about whether they want to have children. But when they have that contempt between them, that can't, that's a bridge that can't be, that, that can't be made, that can't be repaired. And it seems like we have that, that we define our relationships now, right? By whether or not we identify with someone or we can have contempt for them. Do you think, Vina, does that sound right to you or? Is that my um, unique experience? <laughs> um, what's what? What's interesting, I guess maybe maybe what could be different from me is that um, I, in my very close circle, um, I I really feel like nobody nobody's on my side of the issue, and so like one question I've had to ask myself is you know do, do I um am I should I should I let this come in between us or like how do I handle that because it clearly is you know it has obviously the potential to do that right mm -hmm. and so um it could just be me but right now I've, I've I have chosen that um I'm going to I'm going to tell people who are close to me in my concerns and um if they are okay with handling it, if they're okay, as long as they're okay with handling the fact that I am this vastly different from them, then 
um, I also am going to return the same respect and say that, you know, for, for your own reasons, you have this view. And um, maybe for me, since um, I really feel alone in the situation and just maybe it's in order to remain healthy as a human being with friends and family who care about you, I feel like I've had to choose that path. Um, but, you know, every, every day I, I still think of, you know, what could I say just so that they could like understand me a little more, right? Um, yeah. Um, I won't, I won't keep you guys too much longer, but I, and I want to ask you at the end about where the lawsuit is at and where you see it going and, and how you feel about that. But another philosophical question before we go, you know, we have civil liberties in Canada, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, for example. Do you think these things are still important? Yes. What do Absolutely. we lose and what do we lose if we lose them? Because it seems like, I mean, I, Curtis, you were speaking earlier about things that you take for granted, sort of these basic understandings, fundamental beliefs that people have. And I sort of thought, well, if anything, if you think about Canadian national identity, well, if anything makes you Canadian, it's a commitment to those fundamental sorts of um, liberties, right? And, and we used to hear the expression all the time that, well, that's, you know, you'd, you'd say, well, I disagree with that person, but, you know, that's your okay, that's, that's your belief, that's fine. That was a very Canadian thing to do, right? Um, and now you don't hear that anymore because it isn't okay to have to have your own belief. And so our ability to express the thoughts that we genuinely have, and maybe even our over time, our ability to form thoughts that are not just simply a reflection of a dominant, you know, narrative that we hear from from the outside of us. Um, it seems like expression is something that is not free anymore. And if, and if you can't, I mean, it's almost a tautology, isn't it, to say that expression is free, because if expression is not free, then what, what is it you're expressing, right? If it's not your own, your own beliefs, and if they're not, they're not constrained. So this is my very roundabout way, I guess, of asking, does freedom of expression matter? And what do we lose if we lose it? It matters, but it's really hard to pin down what it is. Uh, I think, there's a conceptual question. It's Yeah, it is very difficult because we live in an information age right now. And it, it seems to me, I picked this up from somewhere and it really resonated with me that these days we, we form a lot of our belief system around things that, around information that we receive, not necessarily our direct experience, which might've been different in, mm -hmm times past. And so we're, we're, we're stuck because we're receiving all of our information mediated by third parties that, you know, whether that be the, the MSN, uh, MSN, the mainstream media, or whether that be Facebook or Twitter or Google, Google's products like YouTube, whatever, um, we're, all of our information intake is mediated by these, these big corporations. And it makes it very hard to know if someone's belief is their own or if they or if it's sort of been drummed into them through some other medium right um well is that what freedom of expression is is it just expressing an idea that is your own being able to an being able to express an idea that is your own and then Vina, you'll be you know i'm sure you ask and think about these questions philosophically all the time what does it mean for an idea to be your own right there's sort of a socio-political 
And then I think ethical question about the barriers to expressing an idea you have, but there's a more fundamental identity, you know, personal identity, uh, psychological question about how our ideas come to be formed independently in the first place and whether or not that's possible, right? Yeah, something um, that Curtis mentioned that just um, reminded me of the questions that I had asked myself was um, if I didn't, if I didn't see, if I wasn't exposed to the same information or the same people that I had been like a few months ago or last year, like would I still be, would I still be in this position? Or, or if my own peers saw the same information or evidence and listened to the same people as I had, would they be in my position too? So yeah, this is a really difficult question. And I, I feel like, I feel like a, um, I'm thinking along the same lines as Curtis, where we're, we're really just, you know, uh, whatever, whatever ideas and opinions we have, it's, it's just so deeply um, influenced by the media and everyone else. Because if we really think about it, most of the things that we know is just based on testimony, right? So like when we make decisions about anything, whether it's like vaccines or food, you know, it, it, it comes from dietitians, for example. Well, this right? is the whole or, influencer industry, right? You're basically yeah. making decisions yeah. about your life based on the testimony of someone that for some reason or other you happen to trust, you know, you yes. sure I'll buy that toothpaste mm -hmm. because yeah. Sarah on Instagram says <laughs> Exactly. Product. And we're not yeah, exactly. sort of vanity so, products now. We're making decisions like that, that, but in the realm of things that really deeply matter to our lives based on, as yeah. I think as you quite rightly point out, testimony of others that we take to yeah. be authorities for some reason, right? Yeah. So one, one question kind of is like, um, you know, do you let yourself kind of subconsciously take in, you know, information around you or are you willing to, <laughs> I, I guess, have some independence and really make it a conscious effort to seek um, information yourself. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, that's interesting because the distinction you, you point out there is between um, where do you get the information from? Do you sort of go out into the world and find it yourself or do you kind yeah. of passively sit back and let it come to you? But it occurs to me that another distinction is say two people, you and one of the friends you mentioned who disagrees with your views, right, about COVID, were subject to exactly the same set of, of data, exactly the same information. You might put it into yourselves, let your minds work on it and still come out with very different answers because your mind works on it differently. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fascinated by, I, I asked, you know, Matthias Desmet this earlier and, and that, you know, I'll, I'll let you wait and see what he has to say because it's fascinating. But I'm so curious about what explains the outliers, the dissenters, the questioners who have lived in this culture of compliance that's narrative driven, that makes it very hard to find an alternative viewpoint. And yet two plus years of that still um, work on the information that the media supplies, but work on it differently and come out with a different non-narrative conclusion, right? Don't you wonder that? What makes you different from your friends, from your professors who hold a different view? Yeah, and thank goodness you do, because even if you're wrong, 
that allows us to have a diversity of opinions in yeah. society. And if we didn't, what, what would our culture look like? What would, what would Canada be like if everyone was ordered to believe exactly the same thing? You know, there are countries in the world like that and <laughs> they don't have high demand for, um, <laughs> for entrance. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, my mind just slipped for a second there. <laughs> Because I think I was going to respond to this. Well, this outlier question. I don't know. Yeah. Chris, do you have thoughts about that? About you know what what makes you and uh, and Vina and myself and others like us not comply? Not so interested in buying the narrative. What makes us see information differently? Work on information differently. I can. Only, I think I can only speak for myself. Um, but I've been in environments that I felt constrained in in the past. And I've built a muscle to hmm. getting out. So whether that be growing up in a large family where you know everything needs to be very structured and very organized and efficient, and then and then rebelling against that and getting out of that, whether that be you know, uh, growing up very religious, getting getting out of that and, and examining it, or, you know, I, I had a previous career as well that I felt at the end was getting very constraining. And so I got out of it and I did something new. And so mm. I feel like part of my mind is always thinking outside. It's like, what is outside of where I am? <laughs> and how can I get that? Or I want to explore that. That's just fascinating to me where that comes from. If that's just you know, some something innate, or if there's something very early, uh, it, you know, nurture-based, or a combination of those two that creates that. That's probably another conversation. But I want to ask you both before we have to go: Where are things at with the Ryerson case now? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, I'll, I'll speak yes. to that. Where we're at is. Um... Like I, 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 I can't speak on too much of the details, but we, we as I said, we started on, on, the, on the 1st of April. Um, the lawsuit uh, contains an, an injunction. This is, this is like the, the big thing that we're shooting for right now is, is to get a court date for the injunction, which we have not get, gotten yet. Um, uh, but what what we're doing as a group, we're, we're leaving most of that to the lawyers uh, to to handle the logistics around the, the court case. But what we're focusing on is crowdfunding. Um, so we've raised, uh, I think, thirteen thousand five hundred Canadian dollars at this point on our crowdfund, um, and we're. Uh, can you tell us exactly how people can find that, and then we will link it at the bottom of the interview. Yeah, it's super easy. Uh, RyersonAction.com. It's just forwarded right to that, that crowdfund. It's on fundraiser.com. Uh, but if you just go to RyersonAction.com, you can see it there. We have a video that has testimony from uh, how many different students, Vina? Six uh, students? One, two, three. Yeah, six. Yeah, I think six students uh, in the video telling their stories. and, and Actually, seven. Okay, Sorry. seven. 
and what kind of money are you looking to raise? Are, are you feeling that you will need to have to cover your legal expenses? I know it's hard to answer that question, not being at the end of a, mm -hmm. of a court case, but. Uh, well, currently uh, our crowdfund is, is uh, seeking 50,000. Uh, we, we don't know if we're going to, if we're actually going to need that much uh, depending on where this goes. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, the, we're, we're just trying to get as much as we can at this point. Um, we know it's not going to be cheap, <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. we, we, we still think it's important. And, and we, we went out on a limb and, and uh, if we can't raise the money, well, we'll, we'll figure something else out. <laughs> Well, there are some other options I might be able to help you with too. So there's, I think this is very important. And, um, you know, I, I, I am of the opinion that disagreement is a social good. And I would defend your right to um, challenge the university, even in this legal sense, even if I didn't agree with you. And I think, um, you know, there are not enough people now who realize that when we take for granted our freedoms, they won't necessarily be there to protect us when we need them. And we've had such good lives for so long that I think we're not exactly sure what a life without those freedoms would look like. We're starting to get a glimpse of it and it's a bit scary, but I think what students like you, and it's a vulnerable position to be in. I remember what it's like, you know, being an undergrad or an early grad student and, you know, it's, it's a financial vulnerability. It's you, you live in a world of uh, public opinion being younger than much more than I do. And it's a, um, there's a much, there's a great vulnerability to that, and it's just a testament to your integrity and your courage. And I've really enjoyed hearing some of your philosophical insights today. And I wish you all the best, and thank you tremendously for chatting today.